This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, Poetry Editor of the New Yorker Magazine. On this program, we invite a poet to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, they read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Bianca Stone, who has published several books of poetry and poetry comics, including, most recently, What is Otherwise Infinite. She runs the Ruth Stone House in Vermont, hosts the podcast Ode and Psyche, and serves as editor-at-large for Iterant Magazine. Welcome, Bianca. Thanks for being here. It's so good to be here, Kevin. So the first poem you've chosen to read is Learning to Read by Franz Wright. What was it about this poem that caught your eye? I love this poem for all the reasons that I love Franz Wright's poems. And I was thinking about the act of reading appearing in poems, because it's also in my poem that we're going to talk about later. But I love the way in this poem, as in other of Franz Wright's poems, he's so incredibly good at holding two opposing forces at once. One is that destructive and disruptive part of ourselves, especially in our experiences, our most early traumas and disappointments, simultaneously uncovering these incredible aspects of being um, through language, which feels like really celebratory and genuine. And this poem is about reading. And I was thinking, I'm reading so much Gaston Bachelard right now. And I love how Bachelard says that literature restores life to its lost possibilities. And I feel what Wright is doing in this poem is something akin to that, or acknowledging that. And so I immediately, I felt such a kinship and love for this poem. Well, why don't we listen to you read the poem? This is Bianca Stone reading Learning to Read by Franz Wright. Learning to Read. If I had to look up every fifth or sixth word, so what? I looked them up. I had nowhere important to be. My father was unavailable, and my mother looked like she was about to break and not into blossom every time I spoke. My favorite was the Iliad. True, I had trouble pronouncing the names, but when was I going to pronounce them, and to whom? My stepfather, maybe? Number one, he could barely speak English. Two, he had sufficient intent to smirk or knock me down without any prompting from me. Loneliness, boredom, and terror, my motivation fiercely fueled. 
I get down on my knees and thank God for them. Du Fu, the Psalms, Whitman, Rilke. Life has taught me to understand books. That was Learning to Read by Franz Wright, which was published in the January 19th, 2009 issue of The New Yorker. Uh, you read that so well, I think you brought it to life in a way that I think, you know, the poem is awfully plain spoken, it can seem, mm -hmm. but you really found this music in it. And I think Franz Wright often has that. You know, he's both understated and overstated at the same time, mm -hmm. if that can be possible. Um, how do you wrestle with that in the poem? There is something incredibly conversational and easeful about the way that Franz Wright writes. And... <laughs> You know, some, it's something about tone with Franz always. It's like mm. it feels like a persona of self in the poem that's sitting down with you at a bar or something and talking talking about some weird stuff. But I think there's something really incredibly genuine and personable about the voice in his poems that is utterly him. Listening to interviews and stuff with him talking, he... <laughs> That's what he kind of sounds like. So I love the accessibility of that seeming simplicity in his work. You know, especially in this poem, like it's a very short poem, right? He he, he yeah. gets a lot in, and uh, you know, his line breaks are are always very well placed. And <laughs> right, yeah. Well, and I think they come to bear when he says. To whom, this is a whole stanza, to whom, question mark, my stepfather maybe, yeah. question mark. Number one, he could barely speak English. And then a whole other stanza for two, he had sufficient intent, break, to smirk or knock me down, break, without any prompting from me. Yeah. As you put it, that's just a haunting part of the poem where there's a whole unspoken but spoken of story there. And I feel the whole poem has that going on. And the the use, I think, of, like, he breaks the line and he uses the word break and, of course, is referencing his father's poem, uh, A Blessing. His father, of course, is James Wright. And yeah. they're the only, I think, father-son Pulitzer-winning pair, yeah. <laughs> uh, James and Franz. And, you know, I think he is here writing about that idea, as you said, uh, she was about to break and not into blossom. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just, you know, that's the end of one of uh, James Wright's most famous poems, this poem about seeing two horses in a field. And to have that kind of undertow of this poem, you know, we might have found, at least I found, when I was younger, and it was like this beautiful moment of knowing what James Wright had written like, and then this was his book, The Branch Will Not Break, that he transforms. Here, there's this sort of, story behind the transformation or the lack thereof. Yes. It's shocking to read these two poems next to each other because the tones couldn't be more different. And, you know, we talked about, right. you know, you mentioned that he has this seemingly simple way of writing and it's mixed with this musicality. They both are accessible and very musical, but the tonality of each one is so incredibly different. And I think in terms of talking about speaking to one another through our poems, 
it has a double layer of irony in it because this poem that he's written here that we're talking about is about not being able to speak with his parents, his stepfather, his mother, and mentioning this poem by his father and then reading this poem by his father and seeing the disparateness in tone. Mm. You get the sense that like the word that came to my mind was like obliviousness, like that James Wright's poem is so it's like uh well breaking into blossom right and it's it's very sexually like beautiful or something like it's you know he's seeing these two young horses and they're feminine and he's touching them and it's in this field and he you know he compares the ear of one horse to the thin skin of a young girl's wrist you know and he couldn't be more you know happy <laughs> there's something very happy mm. about it meanwhile we sort of picture his son in the in the background of that poem like at home and James Wright basically you know Franz has talked about it he didn't really see him much after he was eight years old well and he's unavailable which is so different than right. my father was unavailable oh, that you know that's such a clinical kind of word for a deeply powerful disappointing moment right and I, I think you know because we've started off with learning to read he's also reading people in the poem mm. and learning to read people. And, and this idea of if I had to look up every fifth or sixth word, so what? I looked them up. I had nowhere important to be. But then these people who are very important in one's life, your parents, are somewhere else. They have somewhere else important to be, apparently. Right. Um, which is, I think, you know, one of the tensions in the poem. Um, and the stanzas, I think, really do something powerful between them. There's space, but there's also really tension in my reading of it. Um, yeah, they're in these little tersets. Yeah, these tersets. And then the difference between I had nowhere important to be and my father was unavailable, or every time I spoke, my favorite was the Iliad. True, I had trouble pronouncing the name. So even speech is not received by the parents in the poem, but it's also a difficulty. Um, and I think sometimes people think about of poets as having ease with language. And sometimes, you know, you flub something and someone's, well, you're a poet. You should you should be able to. And it's like, actually, it takes like a year and a half yeah. for me to say anything properly. A line may take us hours, maybe, but if it does not seem a moment's <laughs> thought, all our stitching and our stitching has been for naught, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so there's two questions I have. One is, is it an autobiography? Uh, and the second is, is it a Ars Poetica, which is to say, is it a poem about writing poetry? I think it's both and it's not either. So, you know, I've been thinking so much about the idea of autobiography and poetry because poetry is so unique in its genre that we deal so much with the self and our, our, our experience and our psyche and trying to get that on the page. And how could, you know, to say it's not auto, autobiographical would be just to have no idea what contemporary poetry is, right? So gone are the days where the the writer of the poem is not in the poem at all. You know, the, the one's autobiography is very linked to the poem. Of course, we keep that veil up. As you and I know, as poets, we say the speaker in the poem. We don't say Franz Wright in the poem. And I and I and we do that right. for a reason. It's not us in the poem, right? We've, we've created this other thing. And what I think poetry shows us that is really cool is that we use our experiences in our life to understand life, right? He says, mm -hmm. life has taught me to read books. 
And it's yeah, like wonderful. life has taught me to write poems. But autobiography, we 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 are not wedded to empirical facts like other genres might feel the need to be. So we can right. dream. And in dreaming in our poems, that's where we get to break out of the confines of the idea of autobiography, which are so rigid in our Cartesian environment. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I love how you put it. I, I think also there's a sense of prayer in the poem. Mm, yeah. It's courses throughout, but then there's this line that I can't help but think of as a prayer. It's the only line that is by itself. Instead of a final couplet, we get a single line before the last tercet. I get down on my knees and thank mm. God for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that them, the first time I read it or, or hearing it right now, I think of it as loneliness boredom and terror, his motivations. But is there a way in which it's all these people he's mentioned before, all these forces that have made him who he is? I think so. I mean, I think he's acknowledging the fact that our earliest relationships affect everything that comes afterwards. And because of their non-speaking to him, he turned towards books, for example. That's one thing that happens. But also there's this idea that our those broken open by trauma are also broken open to another reality. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're kind of forced into that. Uh, and I think, you know, he's somebody who really acknowledges those darker experiences as containing information and doorways into, well, like a, a spiritual understanding, right? So that getting down on his knees and praying and thanking, you know, he's been to hell and, you know, it's Dante-esque. It's like he's been to hell and he's he's ascended into some sort of understanding about all that experience. Um, is that the list he makes at the end? Dufu, the Psalms, Whitman, Rilke. Is that a particular set of poets? I think definitely. Well, I think so too. What what, what do you think the the definite is for, for him? Because these are, you know, they aren't only poets of ecstasy or poetry of ecstasy. No. Well, the Psalms, you know, the Psalms are religious texts, um, but poetry for sure. You know, I love Rolka so much too. And all of these I feel dwell in some area of trying to speak to the nature of being in some way they all have a connection to the spiritual both dark and light a connection to the earth looking out at the earth looking at the world Mm -hmm. looking at consciousness looking at nature perhaps nature for sure something beyond the poem too they're far away in time as well. You know, they're not like his contemporaries, but he makes them so. And they're also, I don't know, there's something about traveling so far. I feel like we're circumnavigating the globe there. Um, these are his gods, if you will, but also I think these are his like earthly totems that sort of transport him. I think that's really powerful um, in the poem. It's it's a version of the Iliad in a way, the Iliad yeah. being a kind of 
journey and battle and, and the violence, you know, birthing, yeah. which I think has, you know, really been brought to life now that people are rereading it in, in new translations right. and some of the the more it's, you know, nearly a bestseller again. That epic quality is is there too, I think. Totally. I mean, and ironically in such a short poem, each one he mentions, you feel like like you said, that time that 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 length of time for these particular writers. So these are writers and texts of of our species almost, you know? And it feels like he's adding himself to the conversation and that it never ends. Like I think the title of the poem, Learning to Read, there's an open-endedness, like how I learned to read. No, we're still learning to read, like after all this time. You know, maybe we're still learning to read the Iliad after so many years. We're still uncovering, like, why this? Why this way? Why does this endure? And how is it that we have these same questions and interests as these poets across time? Okay, so like the the sort of metaphysical conversation about, you know, that poets have like with like, you know, we have our little autobiography and then there's like this other thing behind it all that's like massive. It's like the autobiography, the shared autobiography. Um, I don't know. Those two contrasting things are so enjoyable for me in poetry. And I, for me, the best poems somehow do that. Well, what I love that he can get away with that I can't necessarily or a lesser poet can't is this idea of, you know, life has taught me or loneliness, boredom and terror, you know, my motivation fiercely fueled. There's this real, you know, like if you're in workshop, someone would say, you're being too abstract. You know, how how can you use these uppercase? Um, they're not literal uppercase, but, you know, nouns. But there's something about it that he earns because of the specificity elsewhere, but also because of the lived quality. It feels like a poem and a poet mm. who's seen a lot and is now telling us what they've seen. Uh, there's something about that witnessing that I think is really powerful. You're so right, because he's very specific about his experiences in this poem. Like, the details are very yeah. concrete, and then he can make these bigger statements around them. But it's kind of sad that in in the, the workshop environment has sort of bred it out of us, you know, the like, we're afraid to talk about truth and beauty. <laughs> and it's a thing, you know, and I'm, you know, as a grad student, you're not necessarily reading the Psalms, you know, and, and one should write alongside the contemporary poets and see, oh, okay, how are we still having these, these uh, ideas? I love that. Now, in our August 28th, 2023 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, What's Poetry Like?, which you'll read for us momentarily. Is there anything you briefly want to tell us about the poem, anything listeners need to know before going in? No, I can just read it. (laughs) What's Poetry Like? Poets play the winter tarantella, making love in the midnight hours on a white iron bed like a dog skeleton distinguishing the essential and unessential moment shared between ordinary lunatics and screaming over a bird in an apple tree until an elegy has to be written to resuscitate the relation. Those who look toward the depleted wildlife of neighborhoods with tragic relish to see somehow ourselves disappearing about ourselves. Once, 
in New York City years ago, the internet technician finally arrived. His teenage apprentice stood in my living room over a Transformer book. He said it looked kind of cool, and he wanted to know what it was. Poetry, I said. What's poetry like, he asked. And the treacherous inadequacy with which one finds oneself explaining in a few loose, deficient words something with lungs and no face, the immortal freak of language you haunt and hunt, which is the original state of language you're trying to get back to from within. Poetry, whose rare geniuses come as bittersweet suicidal explosions on the tongue randomly felt during long, tedious meals, award-winning and already forgotten, all the emoting of the unanalyzable fragments, all the surrender and detonations of precision and reckless insight and reference to hidden wisdom and Coke cans, conversations across time and slips into truth and obscurity of thought altogether blissful the form itself at its best, strings of dreams in the waking life, overlaid like unobserved clothing, the words that sing stillness, the silence craved by perpetual auctioneers, that which is not the tale of event, but itself an event. You know what? Just take the book, I said, finally pushing it into his hands. Thanks, he said, and took it away grinning a little. But later, with snow in my head and a thunder in my right eyelid, I was worried, as I was so dangerously then, about dark yet unspoken things. It frightened me, that shiny black and white book wafting around New York City in the back of a Time Warner cable van, waiting to be opened, waiting to torment him thinking of it changing his life. That was What's Poetry Like by Bianca Stone. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> wow. Speaking of epic, it feels like you encapsulate so much. Uh, I love that it's a Transtromer book, and I love that it's both a gift and a curse in the poem. And the poem itself is structured in such a way that I think it does something very interesting with the sort of before and after. You know, when a story starts, it's often once, but that's not the start of the story. The start of the story is how poets 
are. (laughs) Maybe it's poets alone or something, um, screaming over a bird and an apple tree until an elegy has to be written to resuscitate the relation. It's both humorous and tragic and this ordinary lunacy that you, you mention. But that's sort of just part of the story. And then this tale, and I'm calling it a tale, but it's a poem, this moment of interaction. That framing, was that always something you were thinking about? Or did that come about from this interaction, wanting to be write about what feels like an autobiographical but isn't necessarily? It doesn't matter it, because it's the exchange, I think, that's really important and the framing. Tell us about that. Yeah, I I look upon this poem with curiosity for those exact same reasons because I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's one of those ones that just came uh, out mostly how it is. Um yeah. And looking back, I was like, I could have started it at once in New York City years ago, and I could have ended it at thanks, he said, and took it away grinning a little. I could have, that could have been the whole poem, and it would, you know. Sure. But no, that's not how I, I wanted it. And I, I think that awkwardness, maybe even, I find appealing to I don't know, parse off these sections of the poem of exploration and then have them sort of play off each other. Um, I mean, similar to Franz Wright's poem, right? I I think definitely in Ars Poetica, um, definitely autobiographical. But then I think so much what I love about poetry is that it's always kind of about itself and that – Poetry has a touch of narcissism that it wants to see itself. Um, but like I mentioned in the poem, like I think the the difference between you know pure narcissism and and this is that it's interested in the relational and in in relating to the reader and people and having us see each other, right? So I like making fun of poets a little bit in the beginning. In the way that only poets can. Only <laughs> poets can, uh, you know, make fun of themselves as much as that. You know, I too dislike it, to quote oh, yeah, Marianne exactly. Moore, you know. But this this idea to see somehow ourselves disappearing about ourselves. Because there is that in the poem, too. There's a self and a, a kid, an apprentice, mm-hmm. you know, an apprentice to the... Uh, cable man, um, but also to the poet in a way. Mm. Um, and there's always some accident for poetry. I mean, I think, I don't remember exactly which of it it was, but there's some moment that sparks you. Um, and here, there's a kind of, um, how do you put it, uh, uh, snow in my head and a thunder in my right eyelid, terrific. It frightened me. And this dark yet unspoken thing of this book almost devouring Mm. um, this apprentice. Yeah, and speaking of Rilke, a little nod to Rilke in the end here. (laughs) You must change your life. Um, Yeah. Well, there's a lot of nods there. There's a lot of definitions of poetry in the long second stanza, whether it's bittersweet suicidal explosions on the tongue or conversations across time, references to hidden wisdom and Coke cans, these wonderful evocations that themselves are poetic. Do you think of them as competing with each other as definitions, or are they accumulating and becoming more than themselves? I love I love this question so much. I think both, because 
that's exactly the problem with defining poetry. And yes, it was Derrida who said, like, to say what poetry is would be to renounce knowing. <laughs> right? So he's so cheeky. But like, um, <laughs> but I, I think the fun thing about, you know, the poets have all this fun, like talking about what poetry is and not landing on one thing, you know, and arguing about what real poetry is and isn't. So I wanted to make sure to never land on one definition and to acknowledge the contradictory nature of poetry at the same time, hoping that some thread will be intuited, like the essence of poetry, right? That unseen part of what poetry is, that is at the core of it, will somehow manifest through all these different definitions. And that hopefully the reader will figure that out on their own so that I don't have to say, this is like, that was the problem with him asking this question and me being like, oh, you know, shit. But I love talking about poetry. So it's not about being like, look, I can't answer that question, right? Although at one point you have to be like, you have to do, fall in love with poetry on your own. Like you have to go figure it out on your own. Nobody can really tell you exactly what poetry is, but what great teachers do and why I love teaching is that you can sort of like help guide people towards like the great works and you can sort of get really passionate and into why it's great. And like that infectiousness is, well, it's infectious. I love how you're putting it because I taught for a long time and uh, there was always a point in the semester and I would almost give myself permission to like pound the table and be like, this is important. Right. Like, these are, these are uh, you know, not dead people that you don't have to listen to anymore. These are people who are talking to you. And if you listen right, you know, if you learn how to read or if you learn just to let it envelop you rather than try to boil it to death, you find out something. Maybe it's, you know, a line. Maybe it's a life in poetry. But I think it sort of happens in ways that other things we forget, they don't happen, you know, that same way. Mm -hmm. um, there's something secret about it, but it's also public. It's free, but it costs you everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you know yes. like the, the, there's a, this lovely kind of uh, mix that you capture in the poem here. Yeah, that contradictory nature, that, that the contrasts, you know, that I was talking about why I love the Franz Wright poem too. Yeah, absolutely. In that, you know, what I'm trying to acknowledge too is that like there is a dark, incredibly dark side of consciousness. And that's not only human experience, that's the world, the consciousness of our planet, of, of nature, of the cosmos, you know. We know this in our hearts, but it's hard to face that, you know. Like I could have just celebrated poetry in this poem, but I want the ending is like you need to know that to look at poetry is to – acknowledge to the like dark side of consciousness and why do we do that because it's there you know there's there's grave repercussions for ignoring that but i think too this is why it's hard for people you know when you're pounding the table and saying it's important to your students like that's why you know it's it's important to acknowledge the complexities and the contrasting natures you know it's i like that i that i say it's a black and white book too because i think this is about <laughs> right. binaries you know so sure so um and i can also see it you know i start i started going which edition you know i, I right, you everybody's know, like the, those of <laughs> <laughs> Those of us who might uh, have a few of these volumes, the great will start enigma, to, like, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I love that about it. But wafting around New York City in the back break of a Time Warner cable van waiting to be opened. And of course, this opening and torment is is a mixed blessing, as you put it. But I love this also moment, which snow in my head and thunder in my right eyelid. I mean, someone else would be like, I wrote that line. I get to stop on there. I get to end. You know, like, <laughs> but instead, it, it zooms out. Hmm. And I, I think there's something cinematic about the poem. And that moment of kind of moving from the self to this, you know, Whitman-esque other self out there uh, is really interesting to me. And it's beautifully done. And this idea of waiting, um, we were talking about the Franz Wright, the sort of gerund of learning to read. Mm -hmm. And here it's waiting, waiting, thinking, changing. These are things that poems do. uh, Isn't that right? Totally. And we don't know the effects that they're going to have on other people. And there's something sort of terrifying about that. It's almost like a loss of control or something, you know. And and as a writer of one's own books, too, like you send it out there and it's like a part of your body is like wafting around out there, like waiting, you know. Um, but also, yeah, it's it's an object. Books are objects, you know, that are also somehow the psyche on the page. And there's something sort of frightening in the unseen being made seen in that way. And what are we going to do with that? Um, yeah. Well, I think it also here becomes a kind of epic journey. We were talking about epics earlier. And here it's this book that's doing this journey, but also we know the transdromer, the self, the the other, the apprentice, these kind of transmissions of cable are sort of outpaced by the transmissions of poetry. Yes, that's such a good point. And I hadn't even thought of that. The like, as well as the cable guy too, coming to, to hook up the internet to like make these connections. <laughs> well, the internet, yeah, yeah, is this other connection, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And I love how subtle it is, uh, but also bold, you know, and, and I think those qualities are... are not always as easy to balance, you know, and what I love is that a poem makes us, for a time frame, someone else. We get to be another I, but in this poem, you get to be lots of different figures, including a poet yourself, whether you are one or not. It it is like split psyches, you know, it's really weird that like, because our psyche is so involved with the poem page, and what is in between? Well, it's just the book, it's just there open, waiting to be opened, right? And then, you know, I was thinking of those Lucille Clifton um, dream poems, and I was thinking of how we, I mean, to dream on the page with somebody else, it's the most intimate gift because we don't understand everything in the dream. We know that it's fraught with meaning, from our very own life, only us. It's in our head, our experience. And yet it's full of so much symbolism and and right. uncertainty and unknowability that we'll never know it. So that when if we dream together, what can we discover together by having somebody else involved with it? And even just writing poems is a kind of dream, you know, it's like a kind of dreaming. Sure. It's just they're both dealing with the unconscious so so heavily. 
Well, I think you've put it well in the sense that the dream you say here, the form itself at best strings of dreams in the waking life, right. overlaid like unobserved clothing, colon, and then, then it kind of keeps going. The words that sing, the sort of Lowell quote, not the tale of event, but itself an event. And then it's like, is it exasperated? Is it tired? Is it like, oh, just take it? You know, there's a kind of full upness that happens. Yeah. I know, you can't even take it anymore. It's like too much. Well, you're arguing for, convincingly, the dream portion, the unconscious, to be just as present in the poem and maybe even in our lives. And I think there's a kind of beautifully way that this poem embodies that. And something on the surface that can seem almost simple, though there's that rush of language throughout the poem that I think is so beautiful. I want to ask you about legacy. Oh, yeah. And whether this poem, like the other one, is about legacy. Because you come from a poetic family. Um, do you, is that something you want to mention or talk about or do you think about? or? Well, I certainly thought about it with the Franz Wright poem. And so he mentions his father's poem in his poem. Well, he alludes to it, right? You'd have to know to know. I loved that move, and I feel like with my grandma Ruth Stone's poems, I had a different relationship with her than Franz had with his father, but they're both fraught. You know, they're both emotionally fraught, and I had a very emotionally fraught family. But clearly, Franz had the same experience of having the opportunity to have his father's poems, so I had the opportunity of having my my grandmother's poems. And also, interestingly, Kevin, I was looking through the New Yorker book of poems, which I have, the one from 69? Yeah, it's really, it's an oldie. My grandfather's poems are in there. Um, Walter Stone. And he actually, he died by suicide um, in the 40s. And, you know, Ruth wrote a lot about, that was like one of her major themes was like that grief. And I, my grandmother's poems are so deep in me. They're so part of who I am that, you know, at times it's it's more intentional, like Franz does in this poem, where I, you know, and especially I think in my second book, um, the Mobius Strip Club of Grief, which is a lot about her death and, and the family and stuff, like purposefully interacting with her lines and her poems and staying in conversation with them. And for me, that that intentionality is, I'm interested in that, right? So it's it's a it's a curious thing to be able to see someone that you know so in a specific way and then to know their poems too and to you know over the years the more I look at them the more I understand you know and the more uncovers and then the more you know the older I get the more experiences I have the more I more things are illuminated in her work and I'm so grateful for that and I you know I love her poems so much so the legacy is strong. Well, I love her poems too, and I, you aren't invoking them directly here, but it feels like there's, you know, like poetry is, you know, a pain, you know, <laughs> like you're sort of also saying. Um, and so that's sort of some of the legacy. I mean, I grew up barely knowing poets and, I, you know, would meet people who had poetry parents or poetry families, and I was both envious, but I know it's also uh, an intense legacy or can be. And you, I think, are honoring her just in your own work every day, but also I know you're doing work with her house. And um, it's not a question except a thank you for preserving her legacy. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's a testament to uh, what I believe that she fostered in poetry. That's that's why I'm doing it. It's not because just because she's my grandma, but because I truly believe in in you know the way that she loved and understood the power of poetry and and was tapped in you know like i read her stuff and i'm like oh thank god she was so tapped in i would hate to have i'd hate to not like her poems you know and not to not see that (laughs) she got it you know that she had it um that's right and she really did and um yeah so yeah i think you know she ends uh the grief anthology I did, you know, and I think in the process of doing that anthology, I came to her work. I'm not sure I knew it well yeah. before. And so thank you to her and for that. And and the last question I have is really about something quite different, which is just about poetry comics and also poetry memes. Uh, I love seeing your memes about poets. <laughs> There's something serious about this kind of practice of poets who make visual art. Mm-hmm who make uh, connections between the visual and the poetic. Uh, And maybe that's my broader question, but maybe you can answer it in terms of either the memes or the poetry comics or how you approach it as an artist as well as a poet. Yeah, I spent, you know, I spent many years thinking about visual art, the image and the text, and how comics in particular had such a kinship with poetry. you know, I don't do poetry comics anymore, but I always will love and revere the work and thought that I put into that and the collaborations that I did, you know, with Ann Carson, especially in, on Antigonic and stuff. Um, I think it's, you know, an image is extremely powerful. And maybe that's why I stopped. <laughs> you know, there was too much dissatisfaction that I had between the image and the text, you know, it's a very, actually very hard thing to do, right? Because the image always informs in a different way than language. Um, needless to say, I love its flawedness. You know, I the, the last poetry comics I did, I wrote this long essay called Why I Make Poetry Comics. And then I never, and then I stopped doing them. And the poetry comics that I made for that were like the best I've ever done. And one of them said, poetry comics are always failures. But it was always like people like splayed out in pain. Um, and I think the memes, that sort of like is my new way of satiating my love of image and text together. And I think memes blossomed out of that. You know, I used to say the internet was a poetry comic because so much had begun happening with image and text coming together. And the meme is so fun and irreverent and has like a very specific kind of humor and it's absurdist. And I think the more absurdist and fragmentary feeling, the better. Poetry ones, you know, sometimes they're cheesy, but like I think poets really appreciate somebody drawing attention to our little dramas and humorous like experiences <laughs> like, Oh, like, right. you know, I think one of the last ones I did was like poet, you know, blows $50 honorarium on half a tank of gas to get to the next reading. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a humor in them all, of course, but I think that humor is in the poems too. And yeah. 
the fact that you're talking about the internet as a poetry comic and there's an internet guy setting up this poem right. in a way right. is really interesting. It's so true. So I'm really glad I asked you about yeah. it. Well, thank you, Bianca, for talking to us today. Thank you, Kevin. It was my utter pleasure. What's Poetry Like by Bianca Stone, as well as Franz Wright's Learning to Read, can be found on NewYorker.com. Franz Wright's last full-length collection was F. Bianca Stone's latest book is What is Otherwise Infinite. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.